Welcome back to Reformed Millennials. The podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, this podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Cam Pitchers or Joel Shackleton have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. All right, Joel, welcome back. Another week. Yeah, happy to be here. Another, <clears throat> I thought, actually, was going to be the worst performance of the year for your Dallas Cowboys, and they end up. We pumped them. Yeah. Dak showed up. Did a great job. Huge win. Now, there was one thing I kind of left that game. So, for those that don't follow the NFL as closely as Joel and I here, it was Dallas versus Los Angeles Chargers. I guess the lesser of the two Los Angeles teams. It's probably fair to sure. say. They but still an L.A. team. Like, SoFi Stadium, massive, huge buildup. That was a huge marquee matchup for the NFL. I would say the game wasn't, like, terribly exciting. No. As, an, as a Cowboys fan, obviously, you're invested. But, and as a, as a sports better every weekend, I'm like, okay, where are the offensive juggernauts? Those are the people I want to bet on, bet the overs. Life's way too short to bet the under. No. Always bet the over. <laughs> you always want to cheer for something to happen, not for something to not happen. I go into those games. Obviously, the, the betting aspect always keeps you intrigued and like makes you watch until the end, especially if it's you know debatable heading into the second half. One thing that I, I saw a couple debates online, one was with bar, like some guys from Barstool, and then actually there was a similar conversation happening on another kind of sports conglomerate. And these are from people who are, like, very pro-NFL in terms of, like, that's what takes up most of their airspace when they're speaking about sports. And they're like, how many good games are there a week? Like, how many good NFL games there are? And maybe it's more pronounced this year, but, like, I kind of took a step back and said the same. Like, I'm a fan of the Green Bay Packers. We've had zero good games this year. They're all just grind-out wins or, like, blow-out losses or whatever. If you're just like a casual fan, if you're not, or sorry, I shouldn't say casual fan, but if you're a fan of the game versus, I guess, your team, and a lot of people are because of like fantasy, and we've talked about this you know, at lengths over a bunch of different topics about why the NFL is so successful. But the actual product of the game, it's almost like they've been able to say, that doesn't matter anymore, as long as we have maybe like one or two good ones every, every week some good matchups. They have the ability to flex games into So are they time. refing this into not being a fun season? Well, I don't know if it's the refing or if it's... Or is it the incentives the t- to the team to produce wins in a different fashion? Yeah, well, I mean, like we always say, like in the NHL and NBA, anything that's exciting gets coached out of the league. Yeah. So there could be pieces of that. I, I feel like some of it, too, is just the, 
you know, potentially just one of those anomalies where uh, talent is not coming through as much as it used to, just because you've, we talked about the change in the game. It's gone from, uh, we talked about a few weeks ago when the league was starting off, running backs were holding out because of them not getting paid fair market value. And a lot of that, I think, can be based on the fact that the game has changed so much, has turned into a passing game, has turned into, you know, more court, even more quarterback centric, where those guys are slinging it and you need to have star wide receivers. And typically, if you're passing the ball more, that usually means, you know, bigger plays, more excitement. I think at times, obviously, if that doesn't come to fruition, then you got a lot of three and outs. You got you got a lot of punts. Um, potentially, if, again, we're talking about how many elite Q, uh, QBs there are, maybe not as many as we first thought, just based on the results. Anyways, it was interesting. I mean, I'm not obviously willing to say after six weeks or whatever it's been that um, we're seeing a complete downgrade in the product. But it is interesting seeing, again, these were all like Americans. And I, I think that as much as baseball is their national sport, like NFL is what everybody's invested in from a pro standpoint and then i don't know it was just it was interesting hearing that because i would have never that kind of conversation i didn't think was really prevalent and um you know we're we're seeing we're seeing that uh, obviously at, at times though like their their broadcast numbers are not going anywhere they're huge they're massive uh it's just whether or not we're actually being being enthralled or enjoying the, the product on the field and whether or not that's actually the important thing is like oh was that a good game or did I hit my parlay and <laughs> it my fantasy team win and I feel like that's just such a I, I, we talked I've said it a thousand times I know but it's just that's so interesting to me that you can just have that pull still without having to rely so heavily on the actual product of your game yeah as a Dallas Cowboy fan, it's because our quarterback isn't good, and that's why it's not fun. <laughs> However, um, I, I I think back to the heyday of the NFL, which I think was the last five years of Brady, and then you had the upcoming of the next Brady and Patrick Mahomes, and then you had what seems to be a better um, – who's the guy in Cincinnati? Joe Burrow. Burrow. Yeah who's had a rough year this year so far. I mean, he did just throw three or four TDs to, to chase there last week. But nonetheless, it has been kind of a nothing burger year. Um, really tough schedules for a lot of the good teams also coming out the gate where they're playing each other a lot, which I think maybe has a little bit to do with it. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I tend to agree. Um, I always assume if the Cowboys are even in somewhat of a match or – game going into the final quarter we're going to lose so mm-hmm. i've been tuning out a little bit um a nice surprise last week but yeah i overall, think i think ultimately eh. it's like we we know that this is an or they've realized too and i think more leagues are maybe starting to realize it in, in new products or the way that they're delivering the game is changing they're in the entertainment business Nothing can, can be we as make... bad as the F1 season, so I don't really care. And their numbers are still ridiculous. So <laughs> the, the fact that, again, it's, it's how you've... Obviously, maybe you know, long-term, you can't have a bad product for a, a long time with no competition or without a ton of excitement because, obviously, as we've talked about before, the fracturing of our attention span, there's so many different options. But if they've tied you, if they've glued you in with other things... If still I didn't, tuning in and still making a buck off you. Honestly, man, if I didn't have football, I don't think I'd watch anything of relevance that other people watch, and I don't know what I'd talk to them about. It's kind of sad. If I didn't have kids and football, or I guess in some cases hockey, 
Mm-hmm. What the heck am I even talking to people about anymore? <laughs> it's it's a terrible position to be in. I I'm I think life was better when we only had a certain amount of content that we all consumed at the same time. We all were more mono um, cultured. We we had more or less the same opinions. Now, good <laughs> God, I think yeah, that's a larger conversation for sure. I think I was thinking about the other day too. Just I mean. I think being informed, it's just a, such a thin line, I guess, in understanding and, and like we're getting getting information or information that you are reading and consuming. Like the, I'm assuming there's some great studies on the like mental health aspect and the anxiety levels of people. Like I, I find myself like I mean like I got to remind myself all the time when I'm scrolling whatever it might be, especially right now. I mean we're living in a pretty hostile time with mm-hmm. with information and i don't think we're really going to get into that today but just like reading that stuff i mean the effect that that can have on your day-to-day and just the you know macro level news event items that you're not like okay well i'm not there it's not affecting me that way but like what does this mean long term what or what does this mean short term and you start thinking about you start asking yourself all these sometimes irrational questions but they still have to have an effect on you and again like I mean, I guess it's hard for me to compare because I wasn't a, an adult under the old. Still, I'm not. So <laughs> still, I'm not. But I wasn't an adult under the old news regime or the the old information cycle mm-hmm. to understand. Like, was the same thing happening? It was just you know us picking up the our parents picking up the Edmonton Journal. No, or, Walter Cronkite when he came on TV, everyone listened, everyone believed him, everyone trusted him. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why I don't think we'll ever see a return to. Um, these news moguls that are Canada's making sure that's going to happen with Bill C whatever it was <laughs> C eighteen yeah yeah the last five or six popular bills that have been hit the floor in Canada have been an absolute abomination <laughs> which I I think we'll probably touch on a little bit today with Bill C sixty nine um not a ton but I just want to kind of go over it and this is I don't know I, my crappy transition into what I want to actually speak about I'll today. say the other thing you can talk about other than sports. Is inflation, inflation, which is so fun because we've talked about it for three years. And this is what happens when you print too much money or create too much liabilities that you just hand into the, the hands of, of poor allocators. Anyways, the data that came out on Tuesday, I think, Trevor Toome had a fantastic little tweet thread that um, with pictures, as, as I often need, he, he shows where we're, we're headed. And you know what? It's pretty darn I would say tangible in, in terms of the direction it's going. So I'll just kind of whip off a couple of the, the data points here. So despite acceleration in gasoline, the overall pri- um, pace of price growth slowed to 3.8% in September. So that's year over year numbers. That's down from 4% in August. On a monthly basis, the, seasonality, the seasonally adjusted change in core inflation in September was negative 0.1%. So usually we would see a increase in the price of goods over this month-over-month timeframe. Despite the rise in energy's contribution to inflation, the main reasons for this decline are coming from all of the areas you want to see it. Because oftentimes, you will see a X energy inflation number. So groceries, communications, flights, all contributing to the decline. Those are all the items that we want. I'm guessing this isn't because the NDP went after our grocery stores. 
I'm assuming that's not the case. But it is good to see that the most important input that is in our control, in my opinion, so that being groceries, the communications, the cost of flights, the the cost of the rest of the basket, because Mm -hmm. I don't care who you are, we should understand as a I don't know, what are we, 6 or 7% of global oil reserves? We don't have control over the price of energy, no matter how much we, th- we like to think that our federal government does. Um, we just don't. So that is out of our control. No matter how much we raise interest rates, we'll never be able to get oil to $50. So when you look at the, the Bank of Canada's, I don't know, the future one year of the, the interest rate, at it being prime being, what is it? Um, 7.2 right now. I think that the the overnight lending rate in the fives, I think we've hit peak um, interest rates. I think we're we're there. Okay, somebody clip that. Yeah, and And why? We can have a TikTok of you saying that. But why? But why? So um, DataTrack had a really great thread, and they talked, and the first thing they put is this asset class quilt of -hmm. total return. And the last 24 months or two years, we've had a historic sell-off in bonds. This is the worst performance we've seen, worse than 2009. We had a 15.7% drawdown in bonds, U.S. bonds, last year. And that pain has continued this year. And it's gone up the curve. So if we were to then look at bonds like we usually look at equities, equities are easier. Everyone understands it. More people own them. Um, Bonds are something that older people usually move themselves into. It's not deemed to be something interesting or that you can make money on. The last, our generation doesn't even know what it feels like to make money on owning debt. So it's hard for us to conceptualize this, but we just saw a massive sell-off, 50% in 20-year treasuries. And no, nobody's clamoring that we should be buying this, that the risk is still too high, that the recession, the, the higher for longer. This is literally, we're going to be broke forever. We're never going to fix our recession. But in bonds, it feels like, and this is not investment advice, by the way, it feels like we are capitulated mm-hmm. and that the interest rates are going to continue to go higher, that deficits are going to get bigger and that we're perpetually screwed. Mm-hmm. And for the last hundred years, that is a horrible take. Now, don't get me wrong, this late 70s, early 80s, when we had that, when your parents talk about their 18% inflation, um, we had a resurgence, and that's the reason why we had to get rates that high. We had a resurgence of inflation. Maybe we see that again. I'm not suggesting that it's impossible. I'm just saying that if you've had two historically bad years, oftentimes that's a buying opportunity. Now, I haven't seen that um, show up in hedge fund allocations, Mm -hmm. which is usually where I want to see it before I make any sort of (laughs) broad-based statement here. Mm -hmm. But I think we're inching up on what is likely to be a pretty damn fat pitch for people that think long-term. And that is, you don't think the world's going to end. You believe that we're going to return to normalcy in terms of inflation. I'm of the opinion that we are at uh, significant interest rates above going inflation. So what does that mean? We have inflation at 3.8%. We have cost of money at 5.5 or 5.25. We have a huge gap there, which we haven't seen in a very long time. And that to me should be sufficient to thwart any sort of hot 
um, environment, with the exception of, again, we can't control energy costs. I don't know. It feels like energy or inflation's easing. I, I think that we're returning to normalcy. The 2% number is far away. Don't get me wrong. We're still 1.8% away from that. But something below 3 our Bank of Canada and our and the Federal Reserve in the United States has done a very good job getting to positive real rates. Positive real rates, again, is the cost of money being above the rate of inflation. In 2022, we had 8.9% inflation, 9.1% inflation. We had interest rates at 1%. Mm-hmm. That's a negative delta. So yeah. for me, this feels like we're getting close. It feels constructive. It feels like... This is a good place to enter in terms of the market. So don't get me wrong. I believe that any sort of sell-off in bonds here is going to be painful short-term. But if you have a long-term view on this, it's, it feels really um, constructive to me. Um, when, you, when you start to pull out the cost of mortgages, those sorts of things, prices have really returned to a normal inflation rate. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have to probably deal with the, the turnover in in people renewing their mortgages, I think that's going to be incredibly painful and it's going to reverberate as a lag. Yeah, and pr- prayers up for your boy. <laughs> or next November. Well, sorry. we just made our first mortgage payment like four days ago. <laughs> it was awesome. Whoopsie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not even living in the house and I had to pay for it. <laughs> so I think, yeah, <clears throat> I think a lot of that stuff is, there's pauses you can take out of, so again, Trevor's... Um, Tweet thread is really good, and I, I think the way that you summed that up or what was some takeaways that you personally had, I think that's really good. I think the other thing, and you've alluded to this before, and talking about equities and how, okay, well, if you got a, if your stock price drops by 50% in order to get back to, and you bought it at the high, it takes X more percentage, you know, to get you back up to where you were to get even money. And you need to understand that. Same, obviously, kind of math applies here. Like, we've, we've gone... Our inflation number has gone up so quickly um, over a you know short short amount of time, and uh, from a lot of different facets that are contributing to inflation. So, like Trevor goes on to say, like the slow-moving nature of the inflation calculation is important to keep in mind. If inflation is already back to target right now, we won't see the headline return to two percent for some time. So again, it, it's it's going to be a continued topic of discussion. I think you you do want to make sure that we're reviewing the kind of the monthly CPI data to stay on track with it. Because if you, again, if you were to look at it over a, you know, year or a longer time frame, you can sometimes get things a little bit misconstrued. So it's just important to understand that I don't think this is, as you point out, maybe, maybe we're at a high point. Maybe we're, we're seeing the kind of peak inflation. Maybe we're seeing, you know, peak interest rates, but the original, not original, rhetoric i'm going to say some people's original rhetoric around there being cut 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 immediately isn't necessarily going to come to fruition no uh, yeah if you're renewing next week or even in the next six months (laughs) i'm not sure (laughs) not going to be a great time however um i've made a couple bets in the in my private life that i think that in two years it's going to look significantly different and um so your financial advice is only do don't take my financial advice. Well, one year, yeah. <laughs> only take it in, per, in private and or if you're a client of mine. So, um, 
that leads me to bank stocks because in Canada, that's the only thing people like to talk about. That and if you're in Alberta, oil companies, but they're two different beasts. Um, and I've had a lot of people ask me this question or um, I've seen a lot of advisors even in, in RBC talking about this because it is such a heavy, heavy allocation for a lot of people in Canada. Own the banks, it's always done well. They pass on inflation really well. They, they are able to pass on costs to customers. It's just a very strong business. They don't have a lot of competition. Um, it's a great place to be. Mm-hmm. However, the equity of banks has been a challenging own for most. It's never been a heavy um, allocation for me. However, a return to a, in, uh, a yield curve that isn't inverted, so a positive sloping yield curve, is the perfect time to be owning these these. Um, these stocks because and this is the same thing with utilities they have the ability to borrow money cheaply and if you have an inverted curve they make money on lending it to you long term they get to borrow it at the short end lend it for a very long period of time and then they have a huge profitability there they leverage it 15 times and then they lend it to you over 35 10 15 20 30 years and when you have an inverted cost of capital that's a terrible business but if you have a re reinitiation of reversion which we're seeing right now so tlt is down 50 percent. that means the the yield has skyrocketed and for the longest time we were sitting in one and a half two and a half on like 10 through 30 year debt and it was tough for banks to make a ton of money so they got their 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 um their dividends are higher than um the the going rate at the bank of canada so you have like a six and a half 5.8 to 6.5% dividend yield on the bank stocks. And a lot of advisors don't know how to answer this question. And I'm just like, the reason why they're that high is because you need to have an equity risk premium. So the equity prices have to come down sufficiently Mm -hmm. to compensate the investor. So the dividend has to be higher than the government of Canada because the government of Canada is a better risk than banks. So if it's not higher, the equity is too high. It needs to come down. So that's the reason why you're paying this price. That's the reason why the stock's that high. However, if their profitability can come back up, that the equity risk is worth it, you need to see an inversion of the yield, or you need to see a reversion or a re-acceleration um, of the, the curve. Mm-hmm. And I think if we got any sort of cut on the front end, so the Bank of Canada being like, we're going to cut 100 basis points because we deem we need to do this over the next three or six months, you're going to see a a better yield curve for banks. And that's when they're going to start to perform really well on the equity front. It'll be like a leverage bet on rates coming down. And personally, if you're an advisor listening to this podcast, that's how you should be explaining it to your clients. Um, buying banks here is a bet on banks or the, the yield curve returning to normalcy. And um, it's going to be a really great opportunity for people. And I'm not saying this is not financial advice. It just that's if we saw a return, that's the only way you're going to see the prices go up because that's historically how it's worked. So I feel like I had to answer that question, at Mm -hmm. least in my opinion. That's how you would answer it appropriately. Um, Anyways, as a from a market update perspective, equities have been struggling. The VIX has spiked up to 20 yesterday. A lot of that came from the. Good news is bad news, and bad news is good news in the United States. So what does that mean? What am I referring to? So they had the beige book come out where the Fed is the Fed speaking at noon today. This podcast will go out tomorrow morning. But so in past time, it'll be 24 hours prior to this. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm guessing Powell's going to speak to this beige book, which is effectively where they deem the economy to be going. And it was higher for longer. And that means equities are going to be put under pressure because the, the cost of capital is going to be higher for longer. And you need to model that into your discounted cash flows. And that's literally the reasoning for it. So you saw equities reprice. You saw bonds be volatile. Mm-hmm. And, and because of the, the Middle East tensions, you saw gold and oil do really well. And um, historically, during long out drawn out wars, oil prices do poorly. I don't know if anyone remembers the 20 years that the United States was in the Middle East for, but oil prices, while still volatile, were not 150 for 20 years. They were at 150 for two years. So uh, it's my opinion that the reasoning for a lot of that was because of those tensions. It's because of this this beige book that came out where they, they are effectively saying we're going to be higher for longer. And this is a way in which they can continue to put pressure on, on the costs of, of, or the power that employees have. And then the cost of, of goods, because it's still vitally important for the fed to scare consumers, even though I think they're starting to notice a deceleration because you can see it even in the employment data employers, are returning to being in control. People are returning to the office. Mm. I think it's something close to 70% now, whereas during the entire pandemic, it was well below 40. Um, You have power in the hands of the employer again. Um, People looking for new employment and demanding more income that is slowing. Um, The pools of new talent is growing. All of that data is positive with regards to wage inflation, which has always been king tut, hardest thing to to eliminate. Mm -hmm. If you can get wage inflation to just above where actual inflation is, the Fed's going to be satisfied and happy. That's what they want. So the Bank of Canada and the Fed, for that matter. That and obviously grocery prices coming back in line. Yeah. And I think one of the things that and there was a few viral TikToks and Instagram posts, whatever you want to call them, in regards to the continued discussion around affordability and obviously <laughs> just in North America in general. And I think a lot of this, too, that, that isn't inflation coming and coming back into normalcy and interest rates maybe starting to decline or at least stabilize and and maybe be more predictable going forward. It's not necessarily changing the fact that we've now gotten to this stage because again i think i think that's one really important thing it's like your yogurt that cost three bucks a year ago is now let's say 550 just because inflation comes back down to a normal rate doesn't mean that it's going back down to three bucks (laughs) so we got you know new normal to deal with it's it's more about the volatility around it and i mean I, i use yogurt as my example housing buying a house in in north america the we've we've talked about it like we don't necessarily need to regurgitate everything that we've spoken about before but i think there was a couple of you had shared one with me i'm not sure if you're going to have that in the news newsletter or a link to in the newsletter and essentially just you know comparing i think it was what the you know kind of average down payment was and the average rate and the average payment or yeah average mortgage payment between was it 1970 2000 or 1990 2008 and then now um i also just saw some even just any more of a short-term look and say if let's say you have a five hundred thousand dollar loan that was at three percent and you qualified under a seventy thousand dollar annual salary to have that exact same 
home with the new rates, you would need to be making somewhere between forty and forty-five thousand, maybe more, a year to have qualified on that home. And so, obviously, as a consumer, you're like, well. How is that going to work? <laughs> yeah. Wage inflation, to your point, maybe is it higher. There was more demands. We saw, uh, I mean, I, I think if you run a business, you understand that your your G&A costs for wages and salaries have gone up significantly in the past two years, but not to the same degree as what it's costing people for a re, like potentially a remortgaging at, at those kind of rates, depending on when you bought in. So yeah. it, it's not, it's still a, it's still a pretty big issue that, I mean, and we, I mean, we alluded to it probably nine months ago. We were going, I remember going through some global mail articles and, and you and I going back and forth on kind of the timing of this. And like, I think back then we said it's, it's really going to be 2024 into 2025, like end of 23, all of 24 and into 25 when the glut of these mortgages are going to be refinancing. And obviously the Bank of Canada has an understanding of that data and the Fed has an understanding of that data. We have the issues of In the United States, they don't really have this problem. They have 25-year mortgages that don't well, have to be refinanced. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, but this, the affordability is still an issue and it's maybe just not as concentrated as maybe as we have, but yeah. it's it's still it's still an issue. So but that's, but you know, that's where um, their banks become weaker because now they yeah. have all of these underwater mortgages Yep. that they're having to pay out because mm-hmm. you have these banks that are borrowing money at what was at 1.0 is now five and they've lent it out to all of these people. We'll call it 70% of the population at yeah. 3% over 30 years. And those people, we've seen the memes where the, the Leonardo DiCaprio, he ain't, he, he's not leaving. They're not leaving <laughs> their houses. Yeah. There's going to be no turnover, which again as a percentage of your population in, in an industry, real estate is a huge piece of the business. Yeah. You have, unfortunately, a situation where you lose GDP, you have a lack of mobility. That Those things are all bad for, for the economy. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, I actually believe, well, this is terrible short-term. Long-term, us having a more dynamic, it, it leads to a more dynamic market, a stronger banking system, an issue, a situation where we don't have banks that are undercapitalized because we have loans that are 30 years deep and they're borrowing at five and a half. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, there's, there's counters to a lot of that. And, yeah, for sure, for sure. And for me, um, it is very obvious that this is painful. Um, I, we've mentioned this multiple times. I think affordability and from a mortgage perspective is in that four range. Um, three and a half would be ideal. I'm hoping that in 2025, we have a three and a half. In October 2025, three and a half. Please, God, let's do it. <laughs> Give me a, a, a four and a half prime minus one mortgage. That's yeah, all right. I want. Give Variable me. me. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, I think that Canada's while has a lot of headwinds, don't get me wrong, there is some advantages to us having a, a debt market that needs to be refinanced every once in a while because it it leads to better lending practices, it leads to a better capitalized system, and it and perhaps a less because um, when you see one of the big banks go under, it's just hell, right? Look at what happened in the United States; it almost took the entire world down. I think that we don't want to see that in Canada necessarily, and mm-hmm. it, there is some benefits to that. Yeah. But we won't mention the fact that we don't have enough homes to worry about again. Yeah, we're not going to do that because I mean, I think Christopher Christia Freeland was um, so unusual. Wales always an interesting follow on Twitter. Posted yesterday a quote from her: "Canada absolutely 
can't build more houses without more immigrants. That's what she told the, the Globe and Mail in, a, in an article. Which, like, based on our discussions two weeks ago about all of this, and we were kind of going through some data, talking about new housing starts and, and whatnot, I guess that there can be some credence to that. We don't have enough people building homes, so we need more sure. people to come in and start businesses and, and do that. I'm not sure if... I don't know this at all. This is anecdotal, or this is just a, a question. It's like, I'm not sure how many people that are immigrating into this country are going to be building homes. I don't know. Because we have a housing issue with the existing population. So mm-hmm. if we continue to bring more people in. Is she referring to the fact that they like to do the work? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This was a, I mean, obviously, I'm giving you this tweet live. I was just reading it. Yeah, Christina so, Freeland probably put her foot in her mouth there, depending on what her meaning depending was. Depending on the context. Which she'll be able to it. dance around. Post, oh, 100%. Which is good. Very important to be able to do. Um, the most important. Yeah, Christina Freeland's always good at that. She's very. Anyways, the one <laughs> last thing I want to talk about before we go out, and Trunk Fan, probably one of my favorite financial uh, tweeters, yeah. uh, had Ent- a good little uh, spiff on Disney and it turning 100 years old. So, I don't know, this was a couple days ago. And he had a uh, what-if scenario with Warren Buffett. Yeah. And so Warren Buffett has had dipped his toes into owning Disney for a long period of time. And Disney actually being a very poor investment versus the S&P 500 in its 100 years it's existed. Mm. So it's not been great. That's largely because it's at um, near 10-year lows right now, trading around 80 bucks. And I'm of the opinion that... It's the premier brand in entertainment on the non-sports end, especially if you just if you back out ESPN. And while all of the the uh, the negative headwinds are obvious, their debt problem is clear. They're not going to they're not going to uh, um, claim Chapter One. They can't allow those sorts of things. But there's a lot of problems that has to work through. But in this tweet thread, it just goes to. If you zoom out, Disney's still, holy crap, that is an insane investment. So I'm going to read a little bit of this. Mm -hmm. So an interesting what if for the company is Warren Buffett. Disney turned 100 years old today. He had a significant stake twice, but sold and says that, or Warren has said that this is a huge mistake. The main deal was in 1966 when Buffett, at the age of 36, invested $4 million to acquire 5% of Disney for the Buffett partnership. He even flew down to California to meet Walt Disney before making the bet. $80 million was the valuation of the whole thing, Buffett later recalled. The Pirates of the Caribbean ride had just been put in at the cost of $17 million. Imagine my excitement, a company selling at only five times rides. <laughs> he sold one year later after for a healthy 50% gain. But assuming he held, that would have been an $8 billion position, a 2,000x on $4 million, and would be probably considered one of Buffett's greatest investments. So shoulda, coulda, woulda. But for Buffett, it's a kind of a what if. And it talks about just taking money off the table, I think that at least in my brain, mm-hmm. um, selling one year later after a 50% gain, pretty darn good. but again, I think was probably something that he pulled on or has started to consider when he buys a lot of other businesses. So this is a, another time in which he entered the company in 1998. The Disney sale in the 60s was a huge mistake. I should have been buying. Forget about holding. 
That's happened many times. I mean, we think that anything we sell should go up substantially because we own good businesses. And we may sell them because we need money or for something else. But we still think they're good businesses. And we think good businesses are going to be worth more over time. That's why they like to hold. So everything I sold in the past virtually that I can think of has gone on to sell at a lot more for a lot more money. And I would expect that would be, continue to be the case. That's not a source of distress. But I must say that selling Disney was one of those mistakes. He has been involved with Disney again once more. And that was again in 96 when they got 3.6% of Disney um, for $19 billion when they were um, acquiring the capital cities in ABC. Mm-hmm. And he kind of put all that deal together. Mm-hmm. I think that for me, what, I, what did I pull away from this? Um, at least for myself, as a, the only way that I believe I have any form of advantage over others is having a longer-term view on markets and to have a better um, grasp on allocation. So investing in emerging markets or investing in the United States more than Canada. A lot of Canadians love to be 80% Canada, and then they get smoked because Canada's down 3% this year and the U.S. Yeah. is up 18 yeah. um, You have all of these uh, dynamics. But for myself, buying and owning brands that have staying power, that have moats, yeah. it is a test of fortitude to be able to hold through a lot of these bad events. And the, the debt problem for Disney is shocking. The cost of debt going up has made this very challenging. The, the world in which they overbet on Disney Plus because Disney Plus doesn't produce the same sort of margins that um, the rides do or that going to movies do and then being able to resell IP over and over and over again. So yeah. think movie theaters, video stores, those sorts of things, they were extracting multiple times on pieces of content over and over and over again. They overplayed it through the pandemic. They over over um, produced the Marvel Enterprise. I think, though, you let this cool down for a smidge. Do you think Disney's not going to be around in 50 years? My son is obsessed with yeah. Disney. So, as I look, taking the, you said like your advantage is taking the long term look or having a long term view. And I would agree with that. I think it's obviously then your job it's in it's required basically to look at well what is a lot good long-term hold what companies are you know putting their roots down and entangling the consumer and holding you to that brand and there are going to be bumps along the way but you know who's going to be there and in this example in the 100 years or in the 60 years since warren made that investment obviously he looks back thinking like why didn't i see the fact that this is going to just be Obviously, as, as entertainment, as it as the access to that entertainment continued to grow, um, and obviously that was one of the biggest players, especially in the family world. I mean, you can have massive productions in terms of we don't movie, love families right movie now, movies that are great with with adults, but when you when you tie in kids and you have that lifetime that brand awareness, it's just it's insane. Yeah. And so, speaking of that, just really quickly, I know we wanted to just touch on it just because it's kind of an interesting thing is it net netflix earnings call was last night i believe you said 18 percent up bigly up after 18% hours after hours this morning but um, increases to their premium pricing up to 22.99 no one's batting an eye and they've just recently announced their first live event that they're going to be doing which is going to be this crossover so the they obviously have the relationships with the f1 and with golf with pga and they're doing kind of a crossover event to kick off the weekend of the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix. 
that's happening in November, and they're going to be doing a live crossover golf event with kind of four of the four PGAs professionals. I think all kind of the top tens in the world kind of thing guys and then four drivers that obviously play golf and they're going to be a crossover i talked to you about this before we started recording i don't know how interesting that's going to be in terms of the content i guess we'll have to see maybe they'll push them to be you know, obviously be doing some things that are is going to be really entertaining but maybe some good interviews yeah i don't know but interesting that they're going to be doing this live event for the first time this is something that's new new for netflix obviously they've they've built this relationship obviously they know that a live sporting event is kind of a maybe a quote-unquote easy thing to do first um, like this and in terms of there's plenty of examples of other productions or companies and and conglomerates doing this i'm a premium hd subscriber Mm -hmm. there better not be a single ad in that yeah well i mean other than what everyone's wearing but yeah yeah, exactly subliminal yeah (laughs) but that's gonna be so that's gonna be in november november 14th i think everyone's probably seen the the ads for it if you're scrolling on twitter or instagram it's definitely around but I think that's it. I mean, Netflix is a, such a one of those stories you just talk about, like hitting bumps in the road, right? Oh God, the, the equity has been all over the map, yeah. and um, it's hard to hold. You have to believe in what you're what you're you're modeling, and um, yeah. I don't know. It's easier to hit singles over a long period of time than it is to be a home run hitter, um, and that leads me to my uh, my recommendation for the week: mm-hmm. uh, Make It in Real Estate. It's a book that I'm halfway through right now. And uh, it's giving me a little bit of an appreciation for commercial. And um, as I continue to acquire commercial real estate uh, clients, Mm -hmm. I want to know a little bit more about what they're doing. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. Um, I went into the wrong business. Um, (laughs) But really good. A lot of lessons in it for me. And I, I recommend it to anybody listening here that wants to perhaps better understand whether or not they should be a property developer, if they should be someone who does it on the side, or they... Are just going to do some up down suites. I think it's a really great book for that. So again, understanding it from your client's perspective estate. too, right? I mean, just for advisors and for you know professional help kind of thing. Understanding that yeah. perspective. And, That's literally our yeah. job. Yeah, as professional service providers, mm-hmm. we need to know them to give them better advice. Mm-hmm. So, Cam, you got anything? No, great record. I, th- I think I saw you put in. Um, uh, Prof G's um, financial interview. Advice. Yeah, it was that on Scott's personal finance, and he had um, it was his most recent week. Yeah, I'd assume. Yeah, so I also had watched that. That was a great little interview or a great, um, great production. So I would recommend that as well. Okay, Cam, I know you got to get going. Talk to you next week. <laughs>